That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of That's What She Said. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, is that party voice? And yes, it is. But in my defense, I also just moved into a new house, and it's full of dust, and we haven't quite figured out the heating and cooling situation, and just full of boxes and dust, and, and I'm just going to blame a tiny bit on inhaling all that dust last night, uh, but I'll fully admit that this is mostly uh, leftover from two nights ago uh, when I went to the Peabody Awards in New York, and allow me a slight bit of bragging right now just to explain to you how amazing and honor that was and how cool it was to be in a room with some super incredible storytellers and journalists who are doing amazing things to educate and inform and to be even a small part of that celebration and to share in the honor of winning a Peabody for our more than mean PSA uh, was really an incredible, incredible moment for me as a as a journalist, as an entertainer, and just uh, in life to be getting an award alongside Beyonce and Louis C.K. and Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Donald Glover and, and then the amazing reporters at the small networks and TV stations uh, breaking news that otherwise people never would have gotten that saves lives and changes people's minds on important issues. So it was an amazing night. After the awards, we went to the after party and then ended up at a random karaoke place in uh, what I believe is called boho. There's too many hoes in New York, and you can clip that statement off and use it on its own if you want. But uh, I believe it's called boho, which is maybe Bohemian Village. Who knows? Who can keep track in New York? I get lost all the time. But we ended up in a karaoke place for many hours uh, of of drinking and very loud yelling slash singing, and that explains my current voice. But you know what? Sometimes, guys, sometimes party voice is worth it, and it. It is especially when you're a gosh darn Peabody Award winner. So I'm cool with it. Speaking of being cool with it, this uh, next guest is super cool. And it's pretty cool how I got him to come on the pod, which was just running into him at Wrigley, telling him what a huge fan I am and asking if he, he wanted to come chat. And he said yes. So uh, this is my conversation with the great comedian and Daily Show correspondent Roy Wood Jr., Cubs fan, funny guy, genuine dude and a great conversation uh, that we had together so here it is that's what she said that's what she said happy to welcome in comedian and daily show correspondent roy wood jr thanks for making yes. time roy thank you for having me on your radio program can i call you double s what, you can what, what, what you do they call you in these streets well recently rick flair nicknamed me smoking sarah spain so i believe it is now triple s Okay, so yeah, I'll call you Triple S. That's my official I get... ring name, you know, when I'm, when I'm okay. beaten heads. Sarah Spain. That's right, that's right. Um, so we actually met at Wrigley Field uh, a couple weeks ago. My, over. Uh, husband, I my was husband over spotted on the front you. End of that, my dad. Yeah, you, you were. So was I. It was the beginning of the game. We were, we were yet to get into it. Um, but, yeah, my husband saw you. We walked over. We saw the wood on the back of your jersey, and we were like, oh, it's a Kerry Wood jersey. And then it was like, no, that was, that was your own jersey that you wore because you wore Yeah, the numbers don't match up. Yeah. Yeah. So you're one of those people who wears your own name to a game. Sometimes. I, it's, <laughs> it's weird, though, because the Cubs already have a wood. So right. people like, his jersey number wasn't 21, but that was my number in high school, and now they think I'm a Sosa fan. And it, it, it's, a, it's a confusing thing. But – um, I still, it's it's the only place I wear jerseys now. 
And I don't get an opportunity. I, I work at a job where you can't just show up in a football jersey. Right. For no reason. So I envy those people. I, I really do. And so anytime I'm at a baseball game, I literally look like I'm ready to go on the field at any time. <laughs> I love it. And that was not the best Cubs game. Uh, they played quite poorly. Um, but things are looking up for our Cubs. And you're a lifelong, lifelong Cubs fan, right? Because well, I grew up watching them on TV. And it, it had nothing to do with people. Because I'm from, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. And so the assumption is that you are a Braves fan because Atlanta is closer on a map. But people forget in the 80s, the Braves were trash. <laughs> then facts. The Braves were trash, and the Cubs had a better decade. So I fell in love with the Cubs coming on TV, and by the time I liked the Cubs, the Braves, Sid Breen, slid in the history, and it was a wrap. Yeah, and WGN, the Superstation, is really was responsible for a generation of people all over the country that had no ties to Chicago becoming Cubs fans because you could watch every game. And it was it was also convenient because WGN the Cubs games came on during the day, so I yep. didn't have to fight my dad for the TV. <laughs> right, exactly. My dad would come home at night, which is when Braves games. So we only had one house. We only had one TV in the house with cable. So. My dad would come in the living room at night. Get out of here, boy. It's time for Hunter. <laughs> uh, so it's what are your other sports? Airwolf on USA, boy. Right. It's funny because I actually remember you used the Hunter reference when we were talking at Wrigley, and I had no idea what it was, and my husband was, like, down with that. Like, I completely missed the Hunter era somehow. It was a buddy cop comedy with a linebacker and a cool-ass woman in a blazer, one of those power blazers. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, I don't even know how to describe it now. It'd be like if The Rock and Hillary Clinton were Ooh. L.A. detectives. This is a good idea. I think The Rock's going to be too busy running for president, though, so we, we may have Do you to think he's really going to run, though? I don't know. It Do sounded you like there were actual interviews where I was laughing, and then I was like, wait, I think he's serious. <laughs> like, it's not I even that far-fetched may- anymore. He's got a line of a lot more cash, but I mean, if we're going to have Trump, we may as well have an right. active actor. I know they always like to say, well, Ronald Reagan was an actor before. Ronald Reagan wasn't knocking out the box office <laughs> right. like The Rock. Right. Well, The Rock yeah. is the most inevitable thing as we are heading toward idiocracy. He is the closest we're going to get to President Camacho. Yeah, basically, it's it's probably uh, the, the bigger question is who's his running mate going to be. Well, according to this Saturday's Saturday Night Live, it was Tom Hanks, which is a pretty solid VP. I don't know. I don't who's, know. Who's Tom not Hanks looks like Tom he Hanks. might go against the rock on a couple issues. I like he's <laughs> struggling. You need someone Ooh, that's going to stand really? up to the house and the Senate. Right. Kiefer Sutherland's like five foot three, though, right? So I don't know he's if not he's the muscle we're looking for. Diplomat. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Um, who are your other sports teams other than the Cubs? Cubs, Dolphins, Hornets, and pretty much what the rest the of it I really don't care about. I don't have a hockey team, but I do like Dave Bowen. Okay. Because he's a pretty cool-ass dude. How did you meet uh, Dave Bowen? For those who don't interesting. know, former uh, Blackhawks player. Um, I don't even know what team he's with now. He bounces around. I yeah. want to say he's in Tampa Bay now. I know he went to Toronto for a minute. Um, a good guess. A lot of former Blackhawks are in Tampa now. So how'd you meet yeah, him? Yeah, I, 
we were in Nashville, and Bowen is good. And the sitcom that I was working on at the time on TBS, uh, Dave Bowen is good friends with Vince Vaughn. He's from Chicago. He's huge, huge Blackhawks fan. Um, a bunch of circumstances lead us to somehow ending up at the same bar. And Dave Bowen is doing, I don't even know how to describe it. Have you seen these fitness videos? Where I've seen many. I'm not from, sure. You know. Like, they go from a standing, like a, basically like a dead standing squat, and they can leap up like eight feet onto something, <laughs> like yes. onto an item yes, or an object jumps. or whatever. Box jumps. Dave Bowen is ox jumping onto city trash cans in downtown Nashville <laughs> and nailing it. This, this is like a four, five foot. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Hockey players don't sleep on the athleticism. They're oh, yeah. Those guys, their legs are like insane. Insane. And I'm like, what are you doing? And like, and he's sober and he's just jumping <laughs> up. I'm like, this is your normal behavior. I don't, I don't know that he was sober. Nobody's sober in downtown Nashville. <laughs> no one's going to honky tonks just dead sober that doesn't happen uh he plays for the yeah. coyotes now so he has moved on yet again but it's your boy dave bullen all right so no hockey yeah. team maybe it's the coyotes right now because that's where dave bullen is um, yeah but dolphins see, for sure yeah that's dolphins random yeah that's you've got a bunch of teams that are completely all different like I would argue, I would, I would argue front runner, but most of the teams you like are not teams that you have. You'd be a bandwagon. <laughs> like oh, you're picking no. the wrong I've been ones. Thirty years of misery. I even <laughs> bought a Charlotte Bobcats T-shirt when the team transitioned oh, for a couple of years. When they went from Hornet to Bobcat, and now they're back to Hornet again. Like it was, it was like growing up in the South. Just think about it. What Southern football team was good in the eighties? Other than the Dolphins, right. not the Oilers, not the Saints, not the Falcons, not the Buccaneers. So again, television. Yeah, you're stuck, and and the Dolphins at least have had cool like uniforms and swagger. So that well, it was it was that, and they were also gang safe colors. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Very true. But I'm not even. That's not even a joke. Like I've talked about that before about how the Dolphins were a respectable jersey to wear in the hood. But it didn't. It wasn't black like the Raiders. It wasn't red and blue like the Niners right. or Cowboys. No one was gonna. No gang had turquoise and coral. Right. Is their official color scheme? So I could walk safely through the neighborhood knowing I'm not gonna be mistaken for a gangbanger. Yeah, that's very true. I never thought about that. Uh, yeah, that's the move, man. Yeah. You got to go gang neutral. Same thing that's with the true. Charlotte Hornets. That purple threw them off. <laughs> Because it's kind of blue from a distance, but then you get up to beat me up. You get a little closer to beat me up, and you go, oh, damn, it's purple. It's purple. I'm sorry We're about cool. That. We're cool. Hey, I like uh, Muggsy Bogues, too. <laughs> so you uh, you left Alabama. You went to Florida A&M, got a broadcast degree, and you really kind of got your start in radio, right? Most of your early gigs were radio. Yeah, that was really the bread and butter that paid the bills while I still went out and did stand-up on the road. I went to college. This is so stupid, but so true. I chose Florida A&M because their baseball team had the worst record of all black colleges in the South the previous <laughs> year. And I figured that's the team I could walk on to. Nice. And I couldn't have been more wrong. They don't tell you. <laughs> these college baseball teams, they might suck. 
But they still have people that throw 95. Yeah. Were you a pitcher? No, I was a hitter. I've never seen 95. I played city baseball. I don't think I saw anything over 78. <laughs> so you got there, you tried to walk on, and it, it didn't work out so well? Yo, man, yo, I went to tryouts. You get 10 pitches to swing at at tryouts. I only hit two, and they were foul balls. I walked. I, I just left. I didn't even <laughs> stay to not hear my name called. I'm like, why am I going to stand in the heat another hour and do more drills? I know I blew it. I'm going to Golden Corral. I'm putting in an application. There you go. So did you keep playing recreationally, or was it kind of like, all right, the dream is over, what what am I going to do with myself? No, nah, the dream is over, what am I going to do with myself? And right. it's it's very important to have that realization your freshman year and not your senior year. <laughs> um, so, you know, I always liked journalism. You know, Stuart Scott, RIP, that was one of the people that I credit with me wanting to do something in broadcast because it was, it was he was funny and he talked about sports and I was like we do that at the lunch table every day, so what do I need to major in to do that? So I started down that path, and part of the journalism requirements is that you take a public speaking class. I was taking we were doing impromptu speeches. I kept getting laughs. So I was like, well, this feels like comedy, so maybe right. I'll try that on the side. And started you know I had radio internships and stuff. So when I got back to Birmingham after graduation, uh, I was a radio producer and co-host and. At night, I put on my cape and my hood and became a comedy superhero. <laughs> and there was prank calls early on, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, so many prank phone calls. I got I got suspended for a couple of prank phone calls. Like Basically, like, I don't know how to explain this lightly. Well, I'm saying it, so you're not the one that's going to get in trouble. Um, I called a cruise ship company and told them my granddaddy left his wallet on the slave ship when he came from Africa, and I needed them to check lost and found. Oh, my God. And that'll get you suspended. This was on the the campus radio station? No, this was at this point. This is on a regular paid top 60 media market radio station in Birmingham. Then they were radio. I was doing updates and gospel songs. I was doing safe stuff. But when I got to regular urban radio, and I did that, and the issue was that the cruise ship company was a major sponsor (laughs) of the show. And I thought I was giving them free advertising. Turns out, a lot of cruise ship companies don't want to be associated with slavery. That's crazy. I never would have thought that. Didn't know it. Did not know that at all. But apparently that is the case. And better get you two weeks. I I got suspended because the lady on the phone tried to help me find the ship. How stupid are you? You know I'm joking. Oh, that's sad, though. (laughs) She really didn't get it. But why are you mad? If anything, that's a testament to the level of customer service your company will provide its customers. Absolutely. It made them look good. Um, Yeah. So the prank calls were at a regular radio station. I know you worked for a couple places. How did you get from – so were you doing stand-up shows alongside that, and that's how you got the, the, the television debut, which was on Letterman? Yeah, stand-up was always happening concurrent with radio, but radio paid the bills. Right. So I was basically, I was basically like 23, 24 years old. I'm taking my radio money and blowing it in gas 
to get all the way to South Dakota for three days on the weekend to get booed by farmers <laughs> and then just drive all the way back home. So that that was kind of, you know, my level of repetition. But thankfully, you know, that time in the clubs is what, you know, got me the opportunity to do more television and kind of grow. And you do the last comic standing here and there all of that crap. And I wish America's Got Talent had been going on back then. Might have won me some money. Right, exactly. But you did last comic standing. You finished third. And then you had a couple. You had a show on TBS, Sullivan and Son. And then you were in a pilot with Whoopi Goldberg that didn't get picked up. So you've got a couple of hits and misses along the way. Yo. <clears throat> and then the Daily Show. Tell about Whoopi Goldberg real quick. I'm sorry to cut you yeah. off. I saw Whoopi Goldberg. At like 8.30 in the morning, you do a table read. For people who don't know, when you're practicing your, your television show before you start actually shooting it with cameras, you sit around a table and together you read the script as how you would perform it. It's like a, it's like a sitting rehearsal. Whoopi Goldberg walks in the room. I'm, I'm, I'm positive she's not that familiar with most of the script. Right. She flips through it for like 10 or 15 minutes, and this is not a lot. When the executives come in and we do the table read, Whoopi Goldberg, out of, she has 60 pages of dialogue. She looks down at that script maybe four times total. And just nails it or is she improv? Great professional. Nailed it. Wow. Nailed it. Like, I, oh, my God. It, I can't deliver a thank you speech at a banquet without constantly <laughs> looking down at my note card. <laughs> and this woman is coming in performing entire half hour sitcoms in memory verbatim while sipping tea. So that doesn't get picked up though. And how long between finding out that that pilot didn't get picked up to the Daily Show audition? Ooh, um, damn, that's a good question. Um, I want to say probably three months. Yeah, so you didn't have that long to wallow in, in disappointment. Well, I was kind of already in a way, I don't want to say wallowing, but I was definitely going through a career reassessment because the year before the TBS sitcom had gotten canceled, Sullivan and Son. And so that following year, I had the opportunity to audition and be a part of Whoopi's show. And then when that didn't go, damn, like, damn, what, like, what do I do? Because the thing is that you can only audition to be on one show. And once you're on that show and that show doesn't get picked up, you don't have an opportunity to go beyond all the, basically you're drafted by a team and then your team right. contracts yeah. your team. Yeah. So there's nowhere the playing slot. So I was on the road opening for Wendy Williams and I got a call from my agent uh, saying, Hey, um, daily shows looking for people. Are you interested? And I went to Wendy uh, because the audition was on a day that I would be, I would miss a day on the tour with her. And Wendy Williams is the type of woman that you don't want to tick off or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, thankfully she was understanding about it. So she released me for a day from the tour and I did the audition and I got it. And that's something that almost never happens when you think about all the stuff you audition for and all the other opportunities that you strive for. Um, and it's, I'm, I'm really humbled by Comedy Central. Um, 
even allowing me to be a part of it because it's perfect for me because it's a mixture of comedy and journalism. And that's pretty much what I went to school for. Yeah. Yeah. So your first dream was baseball. You you recalibrate and, and then it's comedy. Um, what was there always a political interest there or is that something that came about uh, much like a, a very precipitous learning curve once you got to The Daily Show? That came about a little bit more once I got to The Daily Show. Ironically, part of what got me the audition was all of my arguing with Marcellus Wiley on Sports Nation. <laughs> there you go. So do you really thanks to ESPN? I'm I'm not even lying. I, because during that year between opportunities, I was doing a lot of Sports Nation. I was popping up on his and hers. And the note on me supposedly was that he has a lot of good opinions. So maybe he'll have some opinions about news. So let's bring him in and see if he can talk about news as 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 dedicatedly as he does the Cubs. Yeah. So, you know, it, it wasn't that, that interest in all the politics and everything that's going on. It wasn't as heightened as it is now. And, you know, I'll be honest, I, when it comes to politics, I was a bit of a blue pill guy. And then you get to the Daily Show and you take the red pill and then you see all the different layers of corruption and silliness and wackiness that go on within our government. You become obsessed with trying to do something to make a difference. So the small jokes don't work anymore. Like I've wanted to do a prank phone call album and I just can't, I can't bring myself to do it because in my head, I'm like, is that really the best way to spend your time now knowing what you know? Yeah. It's tough to go back. Uh, That happens with sports too, sort of, you know, once, once you start tackling the bigger issues, you do still want to talk about the games and the box scores, but you feel like that would be a pretty empty existence if that's the only aspect of it that you that you talked about. Um, you have been described as having a charismatic crankiness. Is that a bit, or do you feel like that's naturally who you are, and that sort of just bleeds into your comedic takes? Uh, it's the second thing. I, everybody, pretty much everybody you see in, Uh, Well, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but most of the people that you see now on The Daily Show are pretty much caffeinated versions of themselves. Right. Like, I'm I'm very much an ornery guy. I'm 38 going on 72. (laughs) I'm pretty much that dude that's always annoyed about little things that just don't, in the biggest scheme of things, don't matter, but I feel like they do. I shouldn't have to pay for an extra sauce when I get chicken nuggets. Obviously. I don't think it's fair. Nope. I don't think it's reasonable. I think movie theaters, I think the guy ripping the ticket, it's easily one of the most unnecessary jobs. <laughs> and I'm all for creating jobs. But if there's one job we can get rid of, it's ticket ripper. Move them <laughs> the popcorn. The line is 20 minutes long. You ever miss your movie because of snacks? Absolutely. There's a there's a Chicago place that's got a bar and they've got one bartender and everybody's trying to get a drink before the show and everybody's late. On the other yeah, hand, you probably so, don't need a drink to watch a movie, but you know, it's a thing. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think that's a very fair assessment of me. It's uh, I don't know if I'm charismatic, but I'm definitely cranky. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely that dude. I, I just got into it the other day with one of these airlines because, um. They say, uh, there was a flight delay. I tried to change my flight. And they go, well, you can't. You have to fly with your bags. 
your bags have to be with you at all times. You can't be on a different plane from your bags. I go, all right, fine. Later in the day, flight gets canceled. Now I have to fly with my fly without my bags. They go, yeah, it's fine. I go, well, then yeah. you're a liar. Right, 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 right. Yeah. You're a liar. You're, it, I can't fly with my bags <laughs> unless it's a situation where you need me to fly without my bags. But not if I want to fly without my bags. Say that. Yeah, the airlines will they'll say anything. Just to, yeah, man, that's the new come up now, man. Forget college. Is. You just need is. to go to the airport and trick one of these right, airport employees into in touching you. Yep, get that money. They touch you, and then I'll flop like LeBron, and I'll <laughs> get me $40 million. Um, So back to The Daily Show. Uh, you know, in Chicago, we talk a lot about um, the MJ hangover with the Bulls. Even when we've got good players and even when they're, they're you know, consistently – six or seven seed, it just doesn't feel the same. Now, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah is incredibly successful, and he is very smart and very funny, but does it ever feel like you're fighting out of the shadow of something that was so huge that it's hard to establish who you are as it is now in this new iteration? I think we're finally past that as a show. Uh, I'm not going to front you. I mean, the first year... You're definitely Aaron Rodgers playing in Favre's shadow, but you just do as best you can to be consistent. Sorry for using a Packers reference. <laughs> it's quite all right. You beloved Bears fans. It's it's definitely you know a transition for me. I looked at all of the old correspondents and what they did, and I just feel like there's nothing I can do to match up to what Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert did. I mean, hell, they have, there's a vault out in Jersey that has a lot of the unedited um, nice. stuff. Nice. That the correspondents did. And I went out there and watched a lot of that stuff. And you can see the nuance in their interview segments and how they bring out, how they can basically sit down with the person they're interviewing and lead them down, and, uh, how they make the fun. And, you sit and think to yourself, oh, my God, I don't think I can do that. I used to do prank phone calls. I'm pretty sure I'm not qualified for this. But what we have an opportunity to do is get with a lot of great writers who were there when John was there, and they kind of walk you through the process of, you know, how we build a joke, how we look at the material, and, you know, some things to consider when you're approaching uh, your segments. And you start carving out something that's unique and individual that to some degree looks like what it used to be. And I, I, I hate, to, I hate for people to sometimes think of the daily show as this continuation of what John Stewart did as much as maybe it's more of a reboot. Right. In a sense, you know how there's kind of a, like if there was a, if there was a way to describe the daily show with Trevor Noah, it's like, the movie Creed where it's technically a sequel to Rocky, but in a way it's its own standalone film. And, you know, thankfully we, we've been at a network that's given us time to grow and find their legs and the ratings have reflected such. So it's been a great ride, but you know, for me, you know, Trevor's the one that has to bother with being in John Stewart's shadow. Right. I'm worried about will I ever be as funny as Stephen Colbert? Yeah. Can I ever that, be that tough? Clever? Too. Can I ever you guys be... are both in tough spots. 
Yeah, that's actually a really you know, good analogy, and I think Trevor would probably be okay with the Michael B. Jordan. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if John would be cool with being Stallone in that. <laughs> it's not as. I think fun. he'd be okay. <laughs> He's grizzled and kind yeah. of. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they both yeah. take a lot of HGH, so that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So when when you're doing a gig like ESPN or The Daily Show, anything in entertainment. The opinion from afar is this is the best job ever, and it is. But it doesn't mean it's always great every single second. So, what's the toughest part of your job? Travel. Yeah. For me, it's for me, it's for me, it's travel, and then it's also the process of putting together uh, some of the segments. You know, creatively you want to make sure that you are nailing whatever point it is you're trying to make. So it requires a disgusting amount of research sometimes just to approach something as fairly as possible. So, you know, I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to think of an example. Like, you know, we we were working on a piece about the cop, the, the police officer who, um, the Michigan, you know what I'm talking. The, the right. cop took the DNA test and found right. out he was 20 percent black, and now he's getting harassed. So, if we're looking at considering that as a story, then it's not enough just to read up on that story. Now you need to read up on the history of DNA testing, and now I have questions about the accuracy of DNA testing. And then you want to talk about that police force and their relationship to the city. And then after you have all of that. Now you have to find the jokes. Right. And then you have to so, get it all in two and a half minutes after you've spent hours and realized how go. complicated it is. And so when you do all of that every week, and sometimes your stuff doesn't get on, sometimes you look at it and realize there is no joke, there's so many variables. Or in these days, you can have something completely done and ready to go and a perfectly fleshed out, beautiful. I had a nice LeVar ball. Uh, rant that was written up and then Trump fired Comey. Yeah. So, you know, big bank, take little bank. We can't talk about LeVar Ball today because there's an FBI kerfuffle going on. I literally just said that last night during John Oliver, uh, because he had this incredibly long piece done about the TSA and he had to make it in three minutes because he spent the whole show trying to recap all of the breaking news that had happened this week with Trump. And that's yeah. got to be so frustrating to put in all the work and let all those beautiful jokes die. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, aside from the travel, that creative process of polishing a rock into a gym and then just throwing it away because yeah. you have another rock to polish. It, it, it'll let you down, considering that coming from 19 years of comedy where you polish a rock for a year and then you perform it for another year and yeah. then you put it on TV. That's a rock. You know how hard it took me to get this rock shiny? I'm not just throwing this out. But, you know, up there we throw away gems every day because there's more pertinent things constantly coming to the surface. So that's a little frustrating, you know. It's a good pod. problem to have. It's just, it makes you, you sad. You should do a, you should do a podcast of the uh, gems that got thrown away for each show. Because not like you don't have enough to do already. Um, 
So on, on Saturday Night Live, they talk a lot about, uh, you know, people go on the pods and talk about the process of the show and how tough it is to make the show about, you know, you love your coworkers, but there's competition there because there's only so much space. Is there competition between correspondents? Is it that same vibe of you're competing for that limited amount of real estate? No, I, I don't think we have the same, that same competitiveness as, um, as Saturday Night Live, because as a correspondent, you're being used all over the building for a number of different things. You might be doing something for the web department. You might be in edit, fixing a piece that you already shot. You might be preparing to go out of town to shoot a piece. You might be researching a piece. So every day is something different, whereas I think at SNL, it's you write, you perform. You write, you write the, you write the sketch, you pitch the sketch, you perform it. Yeah. And that's very much a very linear process over there. So if you write something and it doesn't get pitched, then you know this week you're not performing. And if you don't want that, you got to fight a little harder. You got to scrap a little harder. Whereas a correspondent, I feel like, well, number one, it's only four of us. I think in SNL, it's like 13 or 14 cast members. I know there are a lot of people left in the um, last couple of weeks, but. At, at the Daily Show, there's only five or six correspondents. Right. So I know I can pitch something, and it may get on this week, it may not. The only time it really gets um, competitive is if your pitch is if everybody has a pitch for the same for the same thing. If that makes sense, because yeah, for sure. I'm pitching something that might work for today's show. But it could work for tomorrow's show. It could work for another show down the road. So for me, that sense of if it doesn't get on this, I'm dead, I'm a failure. Because the other issue with SNL, from what I've been told, is that whatever you pitch that week, if it doesn't go, it's dead. You cannot bring that back. It's not evergreen. Right. right. Unless it's, I mean, maybe it's a character, but you have to write a whole new sketch for that yeah. character. Whereas yeah. the Daily Show, hey, man, I got a sketch about why hackers don't hack black people or black companies. That's gonna that's that that's gonna stay fresh for at least a couple of weeks. For as long as hacking is in the national conversation, it's gonna be fresh. Or when hacking returns to the national conversation, which it will sooner or later, I've got this piece ready to to right. repitch. For sure. So there's no pressure. For me there's no pressure. You don't want you pitch a black hacker joke and somebody go, yeah, that's funny. Uh, but anyway, Trump is in Israel. So what jokes <laughs> do we have this week? About it? And like, All right, cool. Yeah, yeah, but for sure. That but hacking I... will come back around and it's not a big deal. So it's, it's, a, it's a different environment because we have multiple duties where I feel like over at SNL, I think if you're not writing on that specific sketch this week that you're working on, then there's probably other things you could be doing creatively, but I just think the competitiveness over there is also, you know, probably a byproduct of why SNL is so good. It's because everybody is fighting and clawing to get everything on. So yeah. maybe that's why they do it like that. I uh, I find that the harassment in in sports is pretty big, but I would never want to touch uh, what happens when people are are vocal uh, politically? I see what what happens. Uh, how has that affected you, or has it at all in terms of angering people with with 
bold statements about our current political state or or, or race. Um, you're going to get that. You're going to get people who disagree with you all the time. We did this Black Trump video <laughs> where we took Trump's tweets and I made them into a rap song. Mm-hmm. I made like 16 bars out of it. Just, just using strictly Trump's tweets, we created a couple of rap verses. And I got attacked pretty pretty good that night on the Internet. There yeah. was a lot of people not pleased with what I was doing. And that that always comes to pass. But I would make the argument that sports fans are more passionate than – well, I, I'm i more scared of someone who attacks me for my views on sports than <laughs> politics. Because – like I'll tweet about sports. I get more hate for my sports tweets than I do anything political. That's and funny. Sports fans scare me more because if you're mad at me about sports, it's scarier. Because yeah, because there's no perspective mad there. At me about yeah. Trump. <laughs> yeah, it's about the country. You think you're making the country better. You think you have a belief that will affect the lives of millions of people positively. Whereas if you argue with me about sports, dude, we arguing about two people catch a ball. Yeah, yeah. And if you were born somewhere else, you probably would have liked that team. So just yeah. keep some perspective, basically. Yeah. It's yeah. like if a guy's willing to drive to Temecula to fight a guy over a Kobe Bryant argument, you know, it's just, nah. If I had to choose, I would choose to stay in politics and not If I had to choose something to argue with somebody at a bar about, It'd be politics. I don't want right. to argue about sports. That's funny. Uh, and, and there's something that's great about being the voice that gets to speak about issues that you care about. Um, but sometimes it's difficult to say, okay, Sarah, come on the show and tell us what women think. <laughs> Do you ever get sick of being the black representative for whatever issue? Yeah, it's it's kind of a yin and yang up at the show where, you know, to date, I think I've done a good balance of doing stuff that attacks, you know, issues that affect black people and more general, broader topics. You know, I might do a story about the state of black, the lack of black representation behind the camera um, in film and television. And then my next story will be about a levy project that FEMA is doing on the Mississippi River that has no implications to race whatsoever. But what I also feel like, it, like it's stressful, but I also feel like I have a responsibility to that because, you know, it's a very short list of black people that have been able to do stuff on The Daily Show. And if I have this vehicle as an opportunity to speak to certain issues from a perspective that a lot of people can't, if, if I don't do the race story, who's going to do it? Right. And if they're going to do it, are they going to do it as good as me? I don't know. So, uh, all right, damn it. All right, cool. I'll do the race story. Give yeah. me that race story. I'll yeah. go cover it. So um, I, I have to make sure that, you know, that I'm honoring the opportunity by trying to keep the door open for those coming behind me. For sure. And like you said, I completely agree. You don't want someone else to be the voice if they're not going to get it right, too. Yeah, now, don't get me wrong. Now, I'm not I can't go full militant. I still need to balance this with a story about glow sticks and a nightclub. <laughs> right. Or something right, stupid. right, right, right. right. Um, so Malcolm Gladwell uh, in his podcast did an episode about satire. And um, he said 
he used a lot of examples from The Daily Show and Colbert Report and SNL and said that satire can convey the underlying truth of of crude or, or, or bad behavior, but it becomes toothless when the message is confused with laughter. Um, and says that while the product might be great at all these places, is it actually accomplishing anything? And I think John Stewart, in a lot of interviews after he left the show, kind of said the same thing. He's not sure what they really did. They certainly informed people, but not that that they really could have changed any minds because satire can can at times be toothless. How do you feel about the current role of The Daily Show and whether you can actually change people or whether it is just an informative show that that allows people to digest news because it's funny. We have in this country um, it, there there was a time in this country where I would argue that black marches probably got the most publicity. I'm not going to say black people are the only people marching. But those are usually the ones that, you know, came to light on the evening. And then we started seeing a lot more gay rights marches, a lot more stuff going on with the LGBTQ community. Then we started noticing that there was Muslims marching. What was important to them? And then there's a women's march. So I feel like to say that satire is ineffective in helping to usher the conversation forward that gets people passionate about issues that could affect change, it, it, mm, I don't know if I completely agree with the, uh, with the respectfully honorable Stewart and Gladwells on that. Now, they probably have much more elongated, educated perspectives on it, but I think if there is not a conversation happening, then... What are we doing? Or what have we done? What have we accomplished? Did we set out to do everything we wanted to do? Does every television show, does every satirical show do that? Probably not. But we'll never know the metrics of what would we be if there were no Daily Show. If John Stewart wasn't holding uh, the Bush, the Bush administration's feet to the fire every night. Yeah. People hear those footsteps, and they have to speak to that stuff. If satire, if satire doesn't matter, why is Trump always online trying to spin jokes that are made about him on SNL? Controlling people fear laughter because laughter disarms fear. Yeah. If I can laugh at someone, I can no longer be afraid of them. If I'm not afraid of you, then I just might stand up to you. I just might... Go march against your Yeah. And yeah. I feel like there's something empowering in that. For, and I can only speak for the now. And I feel like there's something empowering. When you look at the television ratings of all new satirical shows, they're all up. They're all up since Trump won. So there's, there's a need for people to be fed. And I feel like satirical news programs, if nothing else, keep you informed, even if you don't want to get up off the couch and go do something and affect change, you know? Yeah, but, you for know, sure. John Stewart is also the same person that did it. He did a rally in D.C. <laughs> to restore yeah. sanity. 
<laughs> you know, so he's definitely he's definitely, you know, fought for what he believes is right. You know, you can look at the landscape now with the way things are going in this country and wonder, did I do anything? Did I affect anything? And I feel like I feel like the answer is yes. I feel like the Daily Show has done a lot. You know, a ton. You know, we did a story on this levy, long story short, they were going to block off part of the Mississippi River to flood a bunch of poor towns and, and to make some money, whatever. Just shady environmental gibberish. The project was taken off the books now. Hmm. Now, I can't attribute that directly to The Daily Show alone because we did a piece about it, but I really feel like when 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 angry people speak up, Every now and then, the government listens. They'll listen all the time. I guarantee you half of the police officers that are at the minimum getting indicted for questionable police behavior, I don't even think that happens without the Black Lives Matter movement and without people speaking out, without people creating dialogue. Um, You have a judge in Hawaii who decides to revoke uh, the travel ban. Does that happen if people weren't already, you know, informed and then became outspoken and empowered on social media? Uh, You know, it's tough to say, but it's scary to think. For me, it's scary to think of where we might be as a society without satirical comedy. Yeah. I wonder. I think we're better off with it than without it. Oh, 100%. Does it change your approach when accountability doesn't seem to matter as much? And by that, I mean when you criticized previous administrations and called them out on lies and hypocrisy, it felt meaningful. And I don't know if it feels as meaningful now when we just accept alternative facts and the power dynamic feels different when they don't even care if you're calling them out for their hypocrisy and their lies. Well, of course, but then you also can't let one person's reaction dictate how you carry the rest of the rest of your battle or your fight. So you just have to find new approaches to solve old problems. I really think it's, I think that's where we are as a society now. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Before we let you go, you have to do the one thing everybody does. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish inquisition. Yes, that's right. The Spanish inquisition. The questions that I ask everyone on my pod. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? Hitting a curveball. <laughs> Number two, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Oh, okay. Well, I know it's Outcast, so let's just narrow it down there. Mm. Um, give me Outcast ATLians. Okay. Solid yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. For any particular reason, you just want to be that smart. I want to be that rich. Damn, I've got no knowledge. <laughs> all right, number four, what's the most scary? I don't know about ever... no reading and all that computer <laughs> arithmetic job. I just want the money. <laughs> uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh, I had a gun pulled on me. Uh, one time in college, but the guys were coming to rock. 
guys behind me. Ooh. <laughs> so there's that. I skydived twice. That was pretty. That was pretty scary. Yeah. I, th- I think those two, like those are my two near death experiences. Uh, oh, yeah. Fourth when I asked uh, Cherie Calhoun if I could walk her home from school. <laughs> that was my smooth move. I didn't know that uh, it would be like a, like an older sister or a cousin who was in a gang, and oh. she came up to me as I was walking Cherie home and said, if I see your fat head ass walking my sister home again, I'll beat you dead. Also scary. You've got a number of good answers for that one. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've lived a life of fear. <laughs> uh, number five, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Mm, I think for me, it's been um, not accepting no hmm. and figuring out ways to always work to get better at something, even if it's one thing a week. Right? Well, this week I'm focusing on not holding a microphone weird, or mm-hmm. I'm going to work on my stage posture, or I'm going to work on this one joke. Um, there are, there's grits in the system. There's always a loophole. There's always a back door. You know, there were comedy clubs who wouldn't book me, so I gave my print phone calls away to radio stations that they advertised with and then called the comedy clubs back three months later and said, I'm on the radio in your market. Hmm. You have to let me perform there now because I might sell a couple of tickets. So there's always a way to backdoor yourself into the position that you want to be in. And I think you just have to take time to really look at the ways to self-start that. So for me, it's always just been Work as much as you can on everything you can and be nice to everybody because I promise you somebody's going to leapfrog you Mm. and you will need their help and vice versa. 100%. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, I'm not a good communicator with my friends. I am am a horrible friend. I'm going to get all honest and serious on you for yeah. a second. Yeah. I don't call the the people I claim to love, I do not call them or express it enough. Why do you think that is? Because I'm always work, 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 and never accepted no. <laughs> but, did you always, but were you always that way? When you weren't busy, were you good at communicating? Yeah, I was great because I didn't have 50 different things to think about. All I right. got a kid and I got... Three scripts I'm trying to write, and then I'm trying to brainstorm the next thing I want to pitch at the Daily Show, and then I got to go travel to go talk to someone. So there's just so many different names, but that does not mean that you can't take, even if you call one person a month for 15 minutes. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, put a reminder in your phone and uh, give yourself five minutes in the morning where you send an email that just says, hey, thinking of you, you're great. Yeah, you just have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and finally, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Um, genuine, funny, Alabama. <laughs> I like it. That's the first time I got Alabama. 
Um, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. I'm going to have you on again and dive into other stuff, but I've taken up a lot of your time, and I know you're so busy. So it was awesome this chatting is, with you. This was fun. I appreciate Good. you for having me, man. <laughs> and next time you're in Chicago, we will go to a Cubs game that they will win. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> we need to go in September, though. It's too hot now. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not. I'm you done. can't complain about warm weather in Chicago when it's cold all the time. You have to just enjoy well, it. Well, that's a personal problem. I'm from the South. I can complain about the heat all I want. <laughs> that's true. Too that is hot. true. <laughs> it's too damn hot. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much, Roy. All right. Thank you. Oh, and another thing. Here's the part of the show where I do That's What She Read sharing something that I read that I liked. And this is actually uh, a, a clip from the Washington Post that my mother sent me. I love that my mother literally cuts out newspaper and magazine clippings and sends them to me, uh, likely not knowing that she could Google and send me the digital version. But it's much appreciated regardless. And there's something nice about receiving actual mail with, with good uh, articles and stories inside. But it's an obituary for Anne Morrissey Merrick. And I just want to read a bit of it because it's just great. It's by Emily Langer. Anne Morrissey Merrick, who broke barriers in the mid-1950s as a female journalist covering Ivy League football and who, later as an ABC News producer in Vietnam, persuaded the U.S. military to reverse an order barring women from the battlefield, died May 2nd at a nursing home in Naples, Florida. She was 83. By the time of her death, Morrissey Merrick was perhaps best known for her role during the Vietnam War in undoing a regulation handed down by William Westmoreland, the top U.S. commander that would effectively have excluded female reporters from combat coverage. But to those who had followed her career, her gumption in Vietnam was nothing new. As a philosophy student at Cornell University, she became the first female sports editor of the college's Daily Sun newspaper. In that capacity in 1954, she was the first woman admitted to what she described as an, quote, impenetrable male sanctum, unquote, the press box at the Yale Bowl. Quote, Miss Morrissey is a slick little chick whose name probably will be linked in history with those of other crusading cupcakes, such as Lady Godiva, Susan B. Anthony, Lydia Pinkham, and Mrs. Amelia Bloomer. Legendary sports writer Red Smith observed in the New York Herald Tribune. The alert, or even mildly unalert, reader might have noticed that Smith misspelled Ms. Morrissey Merritt's maiden name, as well as that of suffragist Susan B. Anthony. After those mistakes, the columnist frothed on that, quote, the first sports-writing doll to thrust her shapely foot through the door of an Ivy League press coupe had breached the last bastion of masculinity left standing this side of the shower room. Morrissey Merrick, for her part, wrote in the Boston Globe at the time that the greatest revelation of her press box debut was that, quote, the gentlemen of the newspaper profession weren't the whiskey-drinking, cigar-smoking, swearing men they were reputed to be. Or was it just because there was a woman present? She was the sports editor of the New York Herald Tribune in Paris before joining ABC in 1961, rising to producer and occasional on-air reporter. She covered the civil rights movement, the space program, and politics before landing a wartime assignment in Vietnam in 1967. Her goal there, she said, was to cover hidden stories of the war, not simply the traditionally headline-making warfare. Quote, the war was just chopped into little pieces of bang-bang every night for dinner entertainment. She said in an interview for the book On Their Own, Women Journalists and the Vietnam uh, and the American Experience in Vietnam. Because of her petite stature, five foot two inches and 110 pounds, she couldn't wear a U.S. issue uniform and had to acquire a South Vietnamese one on the black market. She braved snipers, shelling, monsoons, fire ants and a monkey bite 
as well as Westmoreland's order. It came after Westmoreland saw Denby Fawcett, a young female reporter for the Honolulu Advertiser, and a family acquaintance reporting from the field. Citing security concerns and despite the long tradition of female war correspondence, Westmoreland decided that women would not be allowed to stay overnight in combat. Quote, an edict like Westmoreland's would prohibit women from covering the war. It was a knockout blow to our careers. We had to fight, Morrissey Merrick recalled in the book War Torn, the personal experiences of women reporters in the Vietnam War. Along with Anne Bryan Mariano, a journalist for the Overseas Weekly, who later retired from the Washington Post, Morrissey Merrick appealed to Defense Department officials, including Phil Golding. After a round of drinks in Morrissey Merrick's hotel room, Golding agreed to lift the ruling. And if you are wondering if I slept with him, Morrissey wrote, the answer is no. After her Yale Bowl conquest, Morrissey Merrick confessed that in her, quote, excitement to enter the press box, she had, quote, forgotten to learn anything about football. She recalled with gratitude one male colleague who kindly guided her through her first experience of punts and plays. Quote, someday a granddaughter will see one male thorn among the buds in a press box and will express astonishment at his presence in a female domain. Red Smith wrote on the occasion, quote, it would be nice to be able to say then, yes, child, but men used to write sports too. Why, I was there when the first girl football writer, dot, dot, dot. I love this story for so many reasons, obviously. Cornell grad, sports writer, badass, but also the idea that this woman was breaking these barriers in the 50s and this writer, Art Smith, was calling her a slick little chick in a crusading cupcake and criticizing the idea that one day there would be too many women and men would have been banned and pushed out of the press box. Um, the fact that that was in the 50s and it still feels like there are people who believe this many years later that it's still a novelty for women to like sports and to cover sports and to be in a press box. Thankfully, it's gotten much better since her days, but... There's something to be said for there still being a faction of people who still think like Art Smith and those people in the 50s. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.